and this dark Okay, uh, we have one question in the back, John. Yes, thank you, David. I think we're about ready. Yeah. Uh, thank you. My, my question has to do with the, um, the issue of morality uh, and your emphasis on the search being an individual search. We all have to search for ourselves. And... Um, and this also relates to the whole notion, in my mind, of, of heroification, of how we select individuals as heroes and follow what they have to say and do, and that negates the individual search. And I come to your uh, quote of uh, Thomas Jefferson later in his life, in 1800, uh, with these wonderful words, I have sworn upon the altar of God an eternal hostility against every form of tyranny. A man who practiced one of the most heinous tyrannies of all time, slavery, and even uh, fathered uh, children through one of these enslaved women. So the search has to be individual, and the heroes have to be put into perspective. Thank well, you. Thank you, John. I'm glad you're sharing that with us. And while we go to the next question, um, somebody I promised, or no, I guess right here. Um, this is where I put together um, like how you could design your own moral view. So this book has um, the various. Um, this is this would be like what a morality would look like if it came from spirituality rather than from dogmatic theology. So I would recommend this if you have that interest. It's called uh, Coming Home to Who You Are, and it's on the back table. Okay, you had a question. Yes, thank you very much for all this information. And I have been taught to be obedient particularly since I was raised by a father with an inflated ego. And I'm the one who, I'm sorry I blurted out, what kind of woman does he find? Because I tend to believe a person who has an inability to connect and thinks they're above, better than, you know, and all that kind of thing, very charming, very handsome man, might have attracted a deflated ego. Mm. Yes. You know, which is a different direction. Or if it wasn't a deflated ego, because I wasn't there to see it yet, became so. Maybe that, what does an inflated ego create? And it, narcissism in itself, because you're not getting any of your intimacy needs met by someone who can't give that. So mm -hmm. if you stay in relationship 40-some years now, maybe 50, <laughs> close to, yeah. what, what does that create? And what does that create in a child, a daughter versus a son who takes the inflated ego? And the daughter who is not allowed, but probably tried and has too many of those characteristics. Yeah. Well, that's a really big question. More like the kind of thing you work on in therapy. 
but I can certainly say um, <laughs> that many of us can relate to you because we've had those kind of parents who like, uh, you know, they were like uh, demigods in their little kingdom in our household. And uh, part of growing up is first rebelling against that, but eventually just placing it in our loving kindness practice so we could look at it with compassion. Because always remember that people who um, are very controlling, this is a little bit off our topic, so I won't spend too much time on it, but um, people who are very controlling are suffering from a compulsion. They can't help themselves. They just have to be in control because of the following fears. They fear what might happen if there are any surprises or anything spontaneous. They fear that if they don't get their way, they will have to grieve what they lost out on. And these two fears, the fear of spontaneity and the fear of grief, make them turn to just stay in full control and then neither of these two will happen. You won't meet up with any surprises and you won't have to grieve what you didn't get. And the way the controlling is maintained is in this compulsive way. Compulsive, compulsion is another example of attachment, what, what in Buddhism we're trying to let go of. So when you look at it this way, you could see those who are very controlling as um, objects of, of, um, of compassion and at the same time not let yourself be controlled by them. So we have two ways of working. One is I notice that you're controlling and I'm not going to let you control me and I'm sorry that you're like that. So um, this helps us just look at it in a little different way than the way we usually do. Okay, Natalie, you have a question? I do. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. So um, when you were talking about letting go of the inflated ego, a couple things occurred to me. One yeah. is that, um, you know, it's the essence really of 12-step work is to surrender. Yes. I mean, you surrender to a higher power, but that's totally up to interpretation. So it occurred to me that that's really what makes 12-step work so deeply spiritual. And the other thing that I was thinking about was, um, and I think you're the one who talks about in your relationship work, dropping the ego in service of the relationship, which I think is such a beautiful phrase. So it makes me think that if you really do that in relationship, then by definition, you have a spiritual relationship. So almost by definition, a healthy relationship would be a spiritual relationship. Would yes. you agree with that? Yes, a relationship is spiritual for t many reasons, but two stand out. 
One, there's nothing like relationship to help you let go of illusions. <laughs> which is the definition of enlightenment. And secondly, it helps you let go of your ego because you get your comeuppance from your way of relating to the other person and the other person is continually pointing out uh, where your work is. And the, what uh, Natalie was referring to was my... Uh, the way I put this is in a healthy relationship you are dispossessing yourself of your ego to gratify the relationship. In an unhealthy relationship you are using the relationship to gratify your ego. You're are you, so here's your question. Am I using the relationship to gratify my ego or am I letting go of ego because I want to gratify the relationship? See the difference? So that would be a spiritual transition. First, I used others and relationships to gratify my own ego, to puff myself up even more. Then I found Buddha's unsurpassable way, let's say, and I started to do something different. I found ways to let go of my ego because now my accent was on how to build the relationship rather than how to build my own image in the eyes of my partner, or in the eyes of the world. It was summarized very well in your little handout. Um, that's uh, if you have your little card with you. Does everybody have one of these? Um, this is simply a quote from the "Coming Home to Who You Are." So. This is what it would sound like if you had dispossessed yourself of ego and, it, and now the, the love had gone even beyond the relationship. It's become bigger. So this happens to us from our loving-kindness practice where we're, our caring is about ourselves, those we love, those with whom we have difficulties, those to whom we are indifferent, and to everyone. <laughs> So it's, may I show all the love I have in any way I can, here, now, and all the time, to everything and everyone, including me, since love is what we are and why. Now nothing matters to me more or gives me greater joy. Imagine if that were the affirmation that you were using on your wedding day and every day be very different from, I'm here to make sure my ego gets fully gratified and gets its full entitlements. <coughs> so that's the spiritual transition. It's away from that orientation to the more loving style.
Okay, uh, right here. Uh, yes. Well, she's going to give you the microphone. Yeah, so far you've been talking about relationships. I'm wondering how that translates. Uh, how one would deal with, say, an inflated ego in the context of organizational dynamics where you're dealing with uh, built-in power differences between people. Very good point. It's hard to find a spiritual path in that particular morass, isn't it? So what she's saying is, uh, is there a way that you could bring this approach to the business world, the the corporate world, the political world. So, um, I'll just read one little thing that I think responds to this. this I knew I had progressed in my own practice when it began to make sense to me that these commitments to loving kindness could someday become the style not only of individuals, but of institutions and nations. It will require a massive shift away from domination, greed, and exploitation, but it can happen. That is the outcome I hope that all us practitioners will move toward. It need not be considered a pipe dream, for as Alfred Lord Tennyson said in his poem Ulysses, it's not too late to seek a newer world. So that would be the idea that you would, you, would, you would not give up on trying to bring the loving kindness practice everywhere you went, although it certainly wouldn't be welcome in so many corporate quarters. But um, then that makes you ask bigger questions, like, can I really survive in this kind of an atmosphere Am I here to be the leaven of it so that I can bring this consciousness to it? Or is it so overwhelming that uh, I just can't do my practice here? Those are the kind of questions you would ask when your spirituality became more and more important. Okay, uh, can we... As I'm, as I'm listening, as I'm listening to you, I'm getting a little uncomfortable with one thing, which is, I work with a lot of women, and uh, the whole idea we're so deeply ingrained with this idea that we're supposed to give ourselves over to love. And other people are mentioning power dynamics, and so I'm a little become a little nervous. Um, I'm actually working with women that I'm trying to help to separate, differentiate, become less codependent, become less enmeshed, uh, really work on finding their own, a balance between finding their own needs and voices. And so in that sense, I guess I feel that the trajectory you're describing of spiritual development might actually more accurately be called somewhat of a male model, that you go from thinking that you're everything and I think to, to thinking that you're less, mm -hmm. and I'm not saying by male, I'm not saying men versus women, I'm just saying a male trajectory, so that's... Well, you're uh, bringing up a good point. Yes, I, did you have more to say? Lots, but... Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
She's bringing up an important point, which is that this ego that we are meant to let go of has to become healthy. That's usually our first step. So this is where we want to build the healthy ego that is assertive in the world, that knows how to take care of, its, of ourselves. And that is establishing a healthy identity so that it's not just about letting go of the arrogance ego so that's one part of the work that is what I would call more of a spiritually oriented approach but we always have our psychological work which is to build a healthy ego so it's not as if you would have no ego at all Obviously, since ego is I, so this I remains for the course of our lifetime. So we're looking for ways to let go of the arrogant ego while at the same time always building the healthy ego, which has the assertiveness, the self-care, and the establishing of our own identity. And this also becomes spiritual because in our loving-kindness practice, the very first step is, may I be happy, may I be free of suffering. So it starts with a self-love, and that healthy self-love is how you build your um, wise, healthy ego. Does this make sense to what, what you brought up? Uh, I, I was nervous that you were going to then relegate sort of psychological development as not spiritual or lesser than. No, it's and once we've psychological achieved our and spiritual. Then we get we women get to progress to our spiritual development. This, I'm nervous of the hierarchical possibilities in in well, the. That's a uh, good point. Yeah, but it, you see how it's psychological and spiritual because it includes the loving kindness practice. What helped us find this connection between the psychological and spiritual is the 12-step program. The realization that, oh, psychology won't help you get over your alcoholism. You have to have a spiritual program. And so you need a combination of what you get from therapy and what you get from your um, humble surrender to a power be greater than yourself. Those two came together so well in the program. That's what helped us see that everything that ultimately helps us be better people is both psychological and spiritual in its, if you're going to look at it, in its full glory. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, Yarko had a question way over here. I just want to tie a, a quick comment uh, to uh, the lady's concern and yeah. what someone earlier said about, gee, wouldn't it be great if we were raised that way in our families? Uh, because this is for a long time seen to me like the job of parenting is 
don't let your kid get an inflated ego, but if you're out of control and you suppress a healthy uh, sense of self, that's the problem in the other direction. And basically there's the picture of the job of parenting is to get that center balance on your evolving inner God person. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. And it does sound male when you uh, talk about the inflated ego, that's for sure. And so I, I do uh, appreciate what you brought up. But I, I'm hoping that this way of looking at it helps us see that um, it's for both men and women. And of course, both men and women can have an inflated ego. We've noticed that. But, um, but she's right that the accent is, for women has been more on submission. You're reminding me of a wonderful poem by uh, Adrienne Rich, an American modern poet. And in this poem, the word screen refers to a folding screen that you use to separate parts of a room. And on this screen is uh, a painting of hunters, uh, of, of guys on a tiger hunt. On Jennifer's tiger's Prance across the screen. Bright topaz denizens of a world of green. They do not fear the men beneath the tree. They pace in sleek chivalric certainty. Aunt Jennifer's fingers fluttering through her wool Find even the ivory needle hard to pull. The massive weight of uncle's wedding band sits heavily upon Aunt Jennifer's hand. When aunt is dead, her terrified hands will lie, still ringed by the ordeals she was mastered by the tigers in the panel that she made will go on prancing, proud and unafraid. Get the idea? So she had all that in her. She had the tigers inside her. She could paint them, but she lived her life under the massive power of her husband. And so she never released her own full powers. So that's a wonderful poem to describe what this uh, woman brought up. Is it called? It's called On Jennifer's Tigers. So we had other questions right here. No, we uh, can't hear. Um, I just wanted to say that it's. I am a 12-step person. It seems like what we're talking about inflated ego, it actually is. I mean, inflated ego can be I'm the bomb, and it can also mean I'm a piece of crap, you know? So I think our work is to become right size. That's the, the term that we use in the rooms. Um, uh, it's not that, I think it could be easy to think arrogance is the only adjustment 
down, but mm-hmm. we also need to make adjustments up to being just one of many, you know. And yes. that, that's that's kind of the ego adjustment I think towards a healthy ego. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, men or women can be in either of those positions, mm-hmm. having to go up or down. That's all. Well, thank you. Yes. So like that's the equality element of it. Like trying to find our equal place. Okay, let's have two more questions, and then right here, Natalie, you too, and then, oh, was there some, you had a question already. Was there one other person that had a question? Okay, so right here. So let's start with, no, right here in the front, and then, yeah. I already had a question. Oh, okay, right there. Yeah. See, uh, David, before the break, you were talking about uh, sort of purpose in life of letting go of the inflated ego, and I and you talked about the healthy ego, setting goals, and being able to manage your life to reach those goals. Yeah. I'm wondering about the I don't know, interaction or influence of spirituality in identifying goals and setting goals, and if you have any comment on that. You mean how your ego would help you well like you gave the example deciding you want to be a psychologist so manage your life to reach that to achieve that but first identifying the goal of Mm -hmm. what it is you know like letting somehow spirituality inform that or guide that or yes or you know how to decipher that sir okay i think you could ask yourself what are the gifts that I came in with. And the talents that I have. How do I find a way to design my, let's say, line of work, if this is our topic, just to use this as an example where my gifts and talents come together and this is my bliss and how will this be of some service to others? So I am making decisions on the basis of gratitude for the gifts and talents I have and at the same time, always wanting whatever gifts and talents I have somehow to contribute to the good of others. So this part comes from our spiritual awareness. And this is how our spiritual awareness helps the ego make its choices. Okay, so we still have one final question. Now, is there somebody who had a hand up that we haven't heard from? Okay, so let's go with you. And then. So there's a reason I'm in this room, and I totally agree with you on aspirations. And yet, I sometimes find myself, I just have to be in awe sometimes of what massive egos sometimes accomplish. And... 
I'm feeling the iPhone on my right hip right now as I say that. And, you know, I, I mean, I met the man, you know, who created this thing. And that was a massive, arrogant ego that destroyed people. So I, I just find myself humbled by that. That's a very good point. That there are some tasks in life where the ego really helps in its inflated state. He's reminding me of, uh, I saw the, the film with um, Brad Pitt. He's a, something about the Dalai Lama and how he's you know, helping him escape and all. Seven years in Tibet. And um, he's a, he's, this is an actual person. This, the original person was a, was a German Olympic champion. And Brad Pitt is playing this part. So anyway, um, I went to this film with this woman friend of mine, and as we were walking out, and I'll never forget this, I said to her, gee, that character of Brad Pitt sure had a big ego, didn't he? And her answer was, that's the kind of ego required if you're going to get the Dalai Lama out of Tibet. <laughs> and I said to myself, she's right. He's absolutely right. So there really are times when it helps us. So I'm glad you brought that up. And this would obviously apply to both males and females. Um, so to wind up this part of what we're talking about, that um, our spirituality has something to do with helping us expand, transcend, get beyond the narrow, constricted limits of its own self-centeredness so that now everything we do, to quote the, um, um, quote the, uh, the Diary of John Woolman. This was an anti-slavery English Quaker. And I have a, a wonderful quote by him. To turn all that we possess into the channel of universal love has become the business of our lives. So I'll read that once more. To turn all that we possess take everything that I am and place it all in the channel, not of self-love, but of universal love, that has become the business, the purpose of our life. Imagine getting to that kind of consciousness. That's what I call spiritual consciousness. And as I say, psychology doesn't easily get us there. It's not big enough to go in that direction. So to transcend this self-centeredness and um, move into this universal consciousness of what the world needs and at the same time to trust that each one of us has a unique way of loving and a unique set of gifts and talents and that all of these 
gifts and talents were meant to be put together so that this particular generation could evolve. The example I usually use is a very simple one that everybody will recognize. I remember this, maybe you do. The beginning of senior year in high school, announcement over the PA system from the principal. S seniors, we will need a yearbook committee, a prom committee, a ring committee, and a class gift committee. So please sign up. The list in, is in the hallway. And somehow, by the end of the year, there was a yearbook, a prom, a ring, and a class gift. And certain people, each of whom felt like he or she had that particular talent, made this happen. And it never occurred that those four things didn't happen because in every senior class, there will always be somebody who can put together a yearbook, etc. So it's something like that in the world at large. We're in the class of 2011, and we each have talents, and it, this whole generation has just what it needs so that this world could be one that operates on the basis of justice, peace, and love, rather than on the basis of the three poisons in Buddhism, greed, hate, and ignorance. So when I go to this and say, this is what I want to make my contribution to, then I am coming from a spiritual place. When I go to here to, I'm interested in greed or hate or ignorance, then uh, instead of coming from a spiritually aware place, I'm coming from what Jung calls the shadow side of my humanity. So, so to use our analogy, what if when the principal was making the announcement, one of the people in the class thought to himself, I wonder if there's going to be a way to steal one of those rings. There probably was somebody who, I don't think there was necessarily, but let's say there was somebody who thought that way, well, I don't know if I can steal one of those rings, because there should be a way to do this. Maybe if I get on the committee, I could get one. Uh, maybe there was somebody who thought that way. That person was coming from this other shadow side. And so the work for that person would be, how do I, how do I make, how do I take the creativity in that thought and now turn it in the direction of integrity. Because the person who thought that, the person who said to himself, I'll bet there's a way to steal one of those rings. That person was very creative. 
And if only that creativity could be reoriented in the direction of justice, peace, and love, he's going to have a big contribution to make. Maybe even bigger than the person who said, oh, I think I could join the ring committee. Well, no big deal. Follow what I mean? So, so part of this transition that we're making in spirituality even includes making friends with our shadow side. Um, before I forget, I want to share this poem by Emily Dickinson because she has expressed so well the transition that she made from um, this institutional and conventional set of requirements to establishing her own identity. And she puts it all in religious terms, so I think it's a wonderful poem to use for what we're talking about here. Um, and then I'd like to comment on it. Uh, and the word, uh, the word um, seeded, C-E-D-E-D, -E means um, is, is like to seed territory. At the end of the war, they ceded their territory back to the victors. So seed means to surrender back. I'm seeded. I've stopped being theirs. The name they dropped upon my head with water in the country church is finished using now. And they can put it with my dolls, my childhood, and the string of spools I finished threading too. Baptized before without the choice, but this time consciously of grace unto supremest name. Call to my full the crescent dropped, existence's whole arc filled up with one small diadem. My second rank, too small the first, crowned, crowing on my father's breast, a half-unconscious queen, but this time adequate, erect, with will to choose and to reject, and I choose just a crown. She puts it out there. It's, uh, I'm seated, I've stopped being theirs. So somehow that would be part of our spiritual work too. It's like to say, what did they try to make me into in my religious background or in my family background? When she says, you know, I was, I was like a little bird on my father's breast. Like I couldn't get any, I couldn't really fly. I was just tied there. But I'm rejecting that. I'm freeing myself. When she says that, you know, they wanted me 
where she says the crescent dropped. She, they wanted me to be the crescent moon, but I'm choosing to be the full moon. Get that? And they gave me the name Emily, but I have a new name now. It's bigger than an Emily. So it's like um, a wonderful realization that um, we can move in that kind of a direction. And, that, and what she says is that what it would take is to um, reinvent yourself. That's the bigness of the work. And it's wonderful that the poem starts with a, a word that means surrender. Because ultimately, it's, um, it's somehow about that. Surrender what? Surrender the ties to anything that was constricting and surrender of the ego if through whatever training we had, it be, had become too inflated. Everybody get the idea? Okay. Uh, well, I'm so glad you're following along and appreciating what we're doing because it really does, yeah, it really does fit. So, um, let's just go to one more point before we go on to lunch. And uh, I'm back in the book. Um, so, the problem with um, beliefs for some of us is that they can belief which is something we feel to be true without evidence that's belief as opposed to knowledge so everybody has some kind of a belief but not everybody has a belief in something transcendent um, Belief can turn into dogmatism. Morality can turn into moralism and often can be connected to hypocrisy. Rituals can turn into rote empty formalism, something that doesn't really have uh, power and meaning behind it. And devotion can turn into superstition. If I do this, then something will happen. And some of us were raised in religious backgrounds that included superstition. So I just want to say a little bit about it um, before we move on. Superstition is, now I'm on page 99. Superstition, superstition by the way, this word in Latin, um, super 
means above or over. And this stition part, this S-T-I-T, means to stand. So superstition means I can stand over my fate. Example, to spill superstition, to spill salt is leads to bad luck. But if I throw some salt over my left shoulder, I will avoid the bad luck. I'm standing over my fate. Everybody follow? Black cat crosses my path. I will have bad luck because of the black cat. And the cat is standing over my fate in that instance. So um, it's a revolt against the given of unpredictability by attempting to control it. For instance, if we break a mirror, we can ready ourselves for seven years of bad luck, guaranteed not to be eight years. <laughs> we hold on to superstition to manipulate mysteriously fateful powers so that they will satisfy our ego needs and assuage our fears, and we may re use religion in the same way. A superstitious ritual at times can be useful. For example, chanting for prosperity leads to a more focused awareness and can result in a sense of the power in us to use wealth for more altruistic purposes. Whereas chanting for prosperity is an ego-oriented practice, but it could help us focus in such a way that we then become altruistic. And repeating a mantra could become more like a, an affirmation. Simple rituals may become superstitions. For example, we sing the national anthem at a ball game and feel a sense of patriotic comfort. That is an appropriate ritual. But it becomes superstition if we believe that our singing of the anthem will help our side win. <laughs> that, likewise, burning incense cannot ward off evil, but it can bring our focus to it. That and the fragrance are the comforts in the ritual. To believe that the incense has some magical power makes it superstition. Everybody see the distinction? And many of these superstitions are medieval, of course, and um, don't really fit. But I do want to bring up one example that um, I think helps us. The New Age movement, uh, now I'm on 101. The New Age movement sometimes presents us with the superstitious promise that the mind can become sovereign. Quote, you make your own reality. We heard this from the New Age movement. You make your own reality. Okay. The belief is that our pure intentions will make life happen in a particular way, enable us to shape the way things will work or work out. Such hyperbole, extremism, 
seems to be fueled by a sense of outrage that we should be so ordinary as to be subject to the givens of life that apply to everyone. If only we can make our spirits pure enough, our intellects bright enough, the New Age says, we shall have all that we want. And we may think a ritual is working for us in this or in any ego enterprise. Yet since our unconscious can be trained by affirmations, that may be all that has happened. The belief that absolutely everything that happens is the result of how we think is another form of superstition. We caused our own cancer or decided to be poor are ways of affirming that the ego is in full control of everything that happens. We chose our own parents, unquote, even extends our control to before birth. Beliefs like these disregard and disavow the presence of unconscious forces of spiritual powers and of grace. So they make it all about yourself. They pay no attention to the other powers in the universe. In that sense, they inflate the ego. So now we would want to look at all our beliefs from our New Age world and ask ourselves, are these really helping me become a person who loves with all his or her might? Or is this just uh, fluffing up my ego? It's a really good question to ask, isn't it? Good. Okay, and I just have one more comment before we we're going to have an announcement um, from Kevin, but I have one more realization. This came to me more recently. Um, being from a Catholic background, some of our religious teaching was superstitious. So one of the teachings, this, isn't a, this is not an official church teaching, but it's kind of a folk belief, is that if you... Um, if you participate in Mass and receive the communion on nine consecutive Fridays, the Sacred Heart of Jesus promises you that you will not die without the chance to make your last confession and have your last rites. Everybody follow? So the, the teaching is go to Mass and Communion on nine consecutive First Fridays and later in life you will be covered, you will receive the last rites. And of course this is a superstitious belief because you're trying to stand above what may actually happen. Now, here's the point I want to make. When I was in seventh grade and I first heard that, I know I said to myself, oh, I better be sure to do this to make sure I go to the Mass and Communion on the nine for first Fridays so that I can be the beneficiary of Christ's promise. This is what I didn't think of 
until I found this Buddhist practice of loving kindness. Instead of thinking to myself, oh good, I can cover myself by doing this. I could have thought this way. What I will do is go to the nine First Friday Masses, not so that I can get the last rites, but so that everybody can. That type of consciousness was not coming through. And that's the danger of superstition. It, it's me-oriented. It doesn't open out and become much bigger. So what a wonderful difference it would have made if instead of thinking, oh good, I'm going to be able to get in on the, on the benefits of this, if instead I said, no, no, speaking as a bodhisattva, no, I don't, I don't want that benefit. I want to bring everybody in on it. Wouldn't that be a beautiful difference? So I just want to throw that out. And I, when I say, when I said all this, I, I have no intention of putting down our, uh, our or any religion. It's just that uh, as we look back and remember the things that we were taught, we start to reconfigure them and ask ourselves, what was this really about? What were they really trying to say? And if the more we can integrate it with what we have found in Buddhism, the um, more can we appreciate it. So. I hope you can appreciate this. I was 14 when the priest said, uh, I had just left Catholic grammar school and had to go to a public high school. And he said, um, well, it's no longer a mortal sin, which if you don't know, you would go to hell if you died when you had a mortal sin on your soul, to eat meat on Friday. So being a very astute person in the Catholic religion, and he knew that my mother was very strict, I, I just went, oh no, what's going to happen to all the people that are burning in hell for eternity because they ate meat on Friday? <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, I'll speak to your mother, Miss Blake. <laughs> I said, but what? how could that happen? That was a good question. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you, David. Uh, my name is Sean Fargo, and the <laughs> events. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.